with my fellow growers. This is at Jack Greenstock. Thank you for joining me. I'm filling in for Shane of the Cheap Home Grow, and I've got an excellent panel of guests this evening. We also have a special guest that will be joining us soon. But with that said, I've got the YouTube officially showing live now on my screen. I'm going to mute that so we don't get any feedback coming through any mics or headphones. It's already muted. Good to go. I'm going to join over to the live chat. For anybody who's listening live, if you are on YouTube, check, check out that live chat button. I just see uh, Theo Love, let's get it, yo, Black Ops Garden. Uh, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and introduce one of our uh, panel members, Matthew Gates. Yeah, hey everyone, it's Matthew Gates. I'm an integrated pest management specialist. Um, I was just on the Future Cannabis Project, shout out to them. We uh, talked about the cannabis aphid forward on cannabis and some aspects of its physiology and ways to treat it and a bunch of other things related to kind of IPM in general too. Um, three, three and a half hours or so. Uh, Spartan's even on there and so is Clackamas Coot uh, briefly. So that was a very fun um, and engaging time. So if you're interested in integrated pest management information, I have a ton of free content on my YouTube channel, Xenthanol, same YouTube channel I'm using in the chat, as well as uh, Instagram at SyncAngel. I have a Patreon, Xenthanol, and I am also on Twitter uh, at Xenthanol. Thanks. Thank you for joining us, and uh, definitely make sure to check them out at those platforms. Next up, we have Spartan Grown. Hello, everybody. I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram at Spartan Grown, or uh, there's three shows on YouTube I usually do more than anything else, and that's the GML show on Fridays on YouTube, this show here the cheap on the Cheap Home Grow channel, and on the Michigan Bros Grow Show channel, you can find me all over there, different days, <laughs> mostly Sundays. Busy band, indeed. I always uh, enjoy seeing you, and even on some of those other shows that you didn't mention, that you're all over the place, so it would get super long if we tried to include every single one every single week. But with that said, next up, we have Aaron the Grower. I am Aaron the Grower, uh, ATG Acres on Instagram. All I do is grow, baby. Come find me. Let's learn together. That's what I like to hear. Short, sweet, to the point. Gotta love it. I'm uh, enjoying the updates from your garden. I love uh, Light Up and I love uh, Hoop Houses. And I think that you're doing a really awesome thing up there. Shout out to Coot and uh, Coot's Mix and all those awesome inputs, making the plants happy. Great job up there, Aaron. Absolutely. So shout out to Sustainable Plant Solutions. Great company. Does uh, fee soil feedback analysis. And I, I recommend them to everyone. Good stuff. Well, next up, we have the American one. Hey Jack, hey panel, uh, everyone in chat, good to be here. Um, I'm the American one on YouTube and the American one with a keys on uh, IG. Just look for the little guy with the American top hat. And uh, shout out to Shane and uh, yeah, I'm glad to be here. We're happy to have you and our guest just arrived, but I'm gonna let the remaining uh, regular panelists introduce themselves and then we'll go on over to Steve. I think he's still getting set up, but next up we have Kyle. Hey, what's up, everybody? Thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, I'm a canvas breeder. I specialize in feminized seeds. If anybody's looking for some, please feel free to check out the letter P, breeding.com. And uh, I'm really excited to see what we have uh, going on tonight, man. We're happy to have you here as always, Kyle. It's great to have your perspective as a breeder on the panel. Next up, we have Brandon Russ. What's going on, everybody? Uh, glad to be here. As always, it's a pleasure to be able to interact with all of the panel members and talk cannabis. 
Um, if you're interested in what I do, uh, you can find me at Russ.Brandon on Instagram. You can find links to my company, Bokashi Earthwork, and the facility that I cultivate at. Very cool. And uh, another, uh, I believe, a cultivator who has a facility in Oklahoma, uh, Steve from Potent Ponics. Welcome. How are you doing tonight? Hey, how's it going? Doing good, doing good. Happy to have you. Could you go ahead and, uh, for the people that don't know you, which is probably very few in this uh, live feed, to be perfectly honest, but for those who don't and the new listeners out there, could you go ahead and introduce uh, yourself to the people and let them know where they can find you? Sure. So uh, my name is Steve. Uh, I run Potent Ponics, which is an aquaponic uh, and uh, soil cannabis consulting company. Um, I also have a huge um, amount of information put out on my Potent Ponics YouTube channel, including the Growing With Fishes podcast. Um, we have over 200 episodes of uh, in-depth interviews from people from all over the industry. Um, so if you're looking for more education, uh, that's definitely a great resource for you to, to educate yourselves on a wide range of topics, similar to this show, but a little bit different format. I really enjoy it myself. Uh, the 200th episode was great with the big panel of different aquaponic specialists. Breeder Steve being one that's uh, notable in my perspective. He's got quite a bit of land there and he's doing it pretty well in my opinion. So it was really cool to hear him not only on that show, but on the previous ones in the past. So we're happy to have you and uh, yeah, very, very thankful that you joined us. And I guess um, probably what the people want to hear about a little bit, even though you've got 200 plus episodes, most of the people here in our 70 episodes haven't heard a lick about aquaponics unless uh i think i was probably one of the only people pushing it and i don't have near as much information as you do about it so i think it's great when you come on a panel like this where maybe some of the people are newer and trying to get into uh growing they could maybe have the perspective from an aquaponic uh person who has done it many many times at different scales to maybe what's the uh, cheapest entry level way for somebody to get into aquaponics I think you're muted. Sorry about that. I had a mechanical mute problem. Uh, hopefully we're good now. Um, Alrighty, so uh, the cheapest way to grow an aquaponic system at home, uh, you know, if you have a, a, an aquarium already, you can take a tough tote and turn that into a sump tank. Uh, this way you're not um, adjusting the, the height of your fish tank. Uh, and then set that up with just a concrete mixing tray. You know, if you really want to bare bones it, you could take a a 40 gallon top toe, uh, a concrete mixing tray, uh, and either build yourself a little bell siphon, a little loop siphon, or just a flood and drain timer, uh, and then an air stone in there to, for the fish, and away you go. Um, if you wanna just absolutely bare bones it, you can build a system for about 60 to 80 bucks, depending on your Home Depot um, or other local store. Um, uh, but you know, that's gonna be your bare bones, bare minimum, uh, you know, get going. Um, one other thing I would highly recommend to be maybe a heater, just to make sure you have some level of temperature stability on there. Not so much to heat the water, but to make sure it doesn't go below, uh, you know, 66, 68, so that your fish don't uh, start having issues. But and that would kind of be your best bet. Now, um, the key to aquaponics really, and I think it, this also can apply to people, anyone doing hydroponics as well, is uh, something called a dual root zone pot. So we have our, our plants, and in fact, I have a Fanta bottle here. Uh, this will work nicely. So imagine if the bottom half of this Fanta bottle below the label was all lava rock or flood and drain media, clay pebbles, whatever. Uh, and then above that here in the upper half, we have soil all the way to the, the surface. Uh, in between, we have a layer of burlap or cloth or other root permeable media and allow those roots to grow down through. 
and, and, and get to the water. Now, what this does is this acts with the water going up and down, this creates a diaphragm action, which flushes fresh air up through the soil uh, and, and giving fresh um, uh, oxygen and CO2 and whatever else those microbes need uh, on a much faster accelerated rate, uh, allowing them to grow faster, propagate faster. Same thing with the water, allowing that the temporary air exchange in the bottom allows those microbes to replicate even faster and the gas exchange to increase the plant growth immensely. And by doing this, we have a lot of control. I can top feed the, the soil with a, a direct top dress. I can make up a, a nice soil mix that's gonna time release. Uh, we can foliar feed, we can dose in the water. Uh, it gives us a lot of knobs that we can turn and a lot of things we can adjust and a lot of variables that we can control uh, that you normally wouldn't have access to if I was just doing hydro or just doing soil. It also allows us to have access to both the terrestrial and, micro and, and aquatic biomes and there's definitely some endophytes or endophytic relationships that are causing increases, particularly in CBD, uh, beta carphaline, uh, and a couple of other particular terpenes um, uh, that is just night and day different every single time that we do a side by side. You know, those are always higher no matter what. Uh, you know, even if it's a, a, a weaker strain, and it, you know, so. I really think that you know the more we research the the relationships between the terrestrial and the aquatic microbes, you're going to see kind of some of this stuff get sussed out, maybe even turn into products, you know, down the line as far as research. What are some of those endophytes? Uh, so, so there's very clearly a, a, a distinction between the micro, uh, the terpene and cannabinoid expressions we get with aquaponics versus hydroponics versus soil. And, um, you know, there's very clearly some type of relationship going on with, um, you know, some microbial, uh, it's something that needs more study. I know that um, uh, there's a couple of uh, people that are starting to, to go down that path at Kentucky State and a couple of other places. Um, I helped them over there with a lactobacillus study where they're actually using labs, um, you, you know, your traditional lactobacillus that you get from KNF or and natural farming. And using it for aquaponics and by dosing the system regularly uh, directly into the fish tank, mind you, uh, they were able to increase fish growth rate by 15% and plant growth rate by 18 to 20%. Uh, um, in terms of the same growth period using hemp as the as the, the plant for the control, so um, you have uh, uh, you know really crazy results with some of the stuff where uh, some of the probiotics even from the soil people are even you know having a positive impact on the the uh, um, you know aquaculture scene as well, and you know uh, we're also seeing that uh, labs that you use for soil also eliminates E. coli and Salmonella and Listeria and other pathog human pathogenic microbes in in soil. And in aquatic situations, in fact, we, we twice now I've had um, two different uh, commercial aquaponics facilities that, that tested hot for E. coli, even though it was a non-human pathogenic E. coli, it still caused them to fail the test. We were able to use lactobacillus to um, to treat that system at a dose of one one to seven hundred and fifty parts. So one gallon for every 750 gallons of system water um, to eliminate that entirely and, and a lot, actually have them pass the test two weeks later. So um, this is, you know, the kind of stuff out there where, you know, both the soil guys and the aquatic guys are, are immensely benefiting each other with, with the work that they're doing right now. Do the endophytes exist in the plant? Oh, yeah, so endophytes are, are microbes that, that exist inside the plants, and we're seeing, um, uh, when you look under a microscope uh, on the roots on the, um, in the aquaponics, particularly if you look at the soil layer versus the aquatic layer, it's night and day different on, in terms of the different microbes that are living on those roots. And by increasing the different um, number of microbes that are exposed to a plant's root system that are non-pathogenic, that's going to increase the number of, of terpenes and other secondary compounds that plant's going to produce. Think of it kind of like... Um, 
vaccines, right? So if I give myself a vaccine, um, that's going to kind of, um, or even even if I don't give myself any vaccine, even if I'm exposed to uh, a disease, I'm going to start to make antibodies for it, assuming my body got enough contact with it. I don't mean to interrupt, but I want to clarify my question. Sure. Are these epiphytes or endophytes? I, I, we don't know, right? It's just something that has to be sussed out, but there's clearly a microbial relationship that's that's very clear and easy to turn off and on and easy to replicate over and over again. That's making it, again, the, the biggest two things that we've seen spike is beta-carfalene and, and CBD in particular. When we do side-by-sides, it's just, it just, it's laughably different. Steve, I have a question. Sure. These uh, beneficial aquaponics-specific microbes, yep. when taken out of aquaponics and just like say watered into your 200-gallon smart pot in the sun, how long do they last? Can it be beneficial in that kind of way? Absolutely. And the other question, all right, let me get one more in so that I don't have to keep talking, is um, you were talking about how the air exchange, the water, flood and drain. Do you do flood and drain straight from the fish tank? How does that work? Especially for me, who is totally idiot. Uh, but, you know, you got a pump in your fish tank that you just pump the water into a flood and drain thing? Or how does that work? Thanks. Sure. So to answer your first question, 78% of aquatic microbes will live in your terrestrial biome. Uh, and that's according to a NASA study when they were working on trying to figure this all out as far as what microbes they need to bring off world for both the aquatic and terrestrial microbiomes. Um, so just to answer your question, 78% of the microbes from your, your fish tank are going to keep living in your, in terms of species, will keep living in your, your soil garden. Now, um, uh, lower than that, um, you have, oops, sorry about that. Um, lower than that, you have, um, uh, as far as your fish tank goes, you can absolutely just, sorry about that. You can absolutely recirculate your water. Um, one second, let me get him out of the room. Just a tip for anybody else on the panel. If you've got a question, if you're worried about uh, forgetting what you're going to say, you can either write it down on a piece of paper or just write it in the chat and either send it or don't send it. That way, if uh, you know somebody else is asking a question or is answering something, you don't have to feel like the need to uh, you're, or you're going to forget or anything like that. Writing it in the chat's usually good for me, just as a follow-up. I like that. I get, I get the hint, Jack. No worries. <laughs> uh, no, I'm the same. I literally have one written down no over here that's talking about what is the best fish um, because we he talked about setting up, but we didn't describe a fish, but I'll let him answer Tao's question. Welcome back. Sorry about that. I have a four-month-old pup, and he's a uh... Sometimes a little honorary. Um, so um, the, to answer your second question, you absolutely can recirculate your aquaponic water. Uh, if you're flooding and draining your system, even if you're just doing wicking beds or, or um, wicking pots or anything like that, you absolutely can. Um, the one exception to that is make sure none of your soil mixes or nutrients you're using for any supplemental feed contain yucca extract. Yucca extract was actually used um, by a lot of Native American tribes on the West Coast to um, uh, poison fish and rivers so that they could catch them. So they would actually concentrate yucca extract and um, uh, concentrate the yucca extract and use it in the roots the, from that and put it into the river. And then uh, the rest of this uh, tribe would be downstream and, and pick up those roots or uh, the fish from the, from the root extract uh, once they died. So it's, it's a very well-known fish poison that goes back thousands of years. Apparently, we were actually talking about this last week. I really liked that you brought that up. Um, good fun fact. I, I guess this is actually a thing that happened in a lot of different cultures over time. But like, you know, we haven't really we don't use that as much as we do now, of course, for a bunch of reasons. But 
it's kind of fascinating. Um, I just want to reiterate that's pretty cool that we figured that out, sort of like a interesting chemistry experiment. I guess uh, going back a little bit earlier, I was asking about the cheapest way to get into aquaponics. This is the Cheap Home Grow podcast. So I do like to give uh, some tips to the new growers and people that want to be most uh, cost effective. So one of the questions you answered, you gave some of the materials, but I wanted to follow up with what fish would you recommend? Is your everyday goldfish okay to use or uh, what is the best starter fish if somebody wanted to get specifically into aquaponics for growing cannabis? So your best starter fish is going to be koi or goldfish, um, but you can use any fish that's within the right pH range, right? So any fish tank that's going to be, you know, in that community fish range of, you know, 6.8 to 6.6 to 7, anything in there, any freshwater fish, South American fish are great because they happen to be generally in that 6 range, closer to where we want it for the plants. So, uh, you know, 6.6, 6.4. So, um, you know, there are a lot of great, cool South American fish that you can grow. Uh, if you're looking at a large scale business, you know, tropical fish can be far more profitable than growing tilapia. But um, tilapia, koi, and goldfish really are kind of the easy, you know, bare bone starters. And hey, you know, the, the cheapest way to get started if you're just trying to get down this way is look, if you've got an aquarium and you do your water changes, take all that dirty water from that and just pour that on your soil plants. Like that's as bare bones as you can get. I uh, want to geek out with you for a moment. Uh, for a small amount of time, I used to, I did like a sort of an experimental aquaponics thing that was very <laughs> bare bones. And I used, um, I used crayfish actually. And in this case, it was wild caught. So there's some issues I would assume with like pathogens and that sort of a thing. Um, I know that for example, there's a lot of snails, a lot of uh, aquatic snails that although they do produce a lot of waste themselves, um, can have their own sort they can lend themselves to problems too are there other animals that are aquatic that would be a bad idea for somebody to use or would be a great idea to, for somebody to use and what do you think about the crayfish idea so so there's a couple issues with that so first off um i would avoid any snails in any system for schistomiasis reasons uh, especially having just come back from africa that is not something you want to deal with um so absolutely agree straight, straight off the top especially if i was outside the u.s getting away from anything that's just a you know that might remotely be a systemized vector is going to be numero uno um so that would be that one so no snails and there's other pathogens as well but schisto is probably going to be your number one um and you have no way unless you had a really clean food grade source to guarantee that you're not going to have issues so your next one is going to be um the crayfish now the problem you have with crayfish, so first off for cannabis, um, they're just not gonna work the potassium levels and some of the other nutrients that we're gonna run, even within a fish safe range are, are just not invertebrate safe. They're just more sensitive, right? So um, they, they, they won't work for that reason. So- Somebody the, in the chat asked, what's a safe EC for uh, the fish tank? So we don't actually read EC. There's too many free organics in it and uh, we don't look at that at all. I look at PPMs. Um, so we'll look at, so we'll look at, um, I'll test out my water and look at the individual PPMs for calcium, nitrogen, magnesium, phosphorus, zinc, and I'll dose them all individually rather than looking at it as a shot, you know, a whole. Um, I found that, uh, you know, I, I, from doing reef tanks and stuff, that's always how we always did reef tanks. So it, transitioning over, it was like, well, why aren't we doing that? You know, total PPMs, well, that's cool, but it could be like 80% calcium, right? Like who knows? So you're just, you're just doing a water test for that standard water test from like a Logan Labs type place? Yep, so I send it out to either MMI Labs or J.R. Peters usually. Okay. So earlier you're talking I, I about- had a, I had a question ahead, too. Um, 
about you were talking about the probiotics and you talked about specifically the lactic acid bacteria now i'm really familiar with the different species of bacillus but um there's also a product that i have it's it's a probiotic it also has a saccharomyces cerevisiae and the right pseudomonas pudorustrius i think it is which is a purple non-sulfur bacteria have you um, used the EM1 consortium or have you just used the bacillus species? And, and if you have, have you seen an increase with the added yeast and the right up pseudomonas? Yeah, so um, I have used EM1. Back when I used to work at Aquaponics Source, we did test the, the straight up product version of EM1. Um, we had really good results. In fact, we it was one of the products we started carrying for seeding new systems. I don't remember what the exact data was on it. It was quite a few years ago now at this point, and we didn't run it on cannabis. Um, I have not. I have done the purple salt um, non-sulfur bacteria just on like the homemade scale, like KNF style, but I haven't run it anything beyond that. But I would absolutely imagine that it was it probably do just fine in aquaponics. Um, it's not going to kill the fish. Generally, most of the things like that seem to be highly beneficial in aquaponic systems in general. But uh, I haven't, you know, I can't speak firsthand because I haven't, I haven't used that in that exact way that you described. They, they are used for like commercial uh, fish farms, crab farming, and a lot of uh, Asian countries. They use those to, like you said, increase the, uh, the health and vigor of the total system, including the health of the, uh, the, you know, the product, the fish or the crabs. Yeah, I do know they use it quite extensively for shrimp and crayfish farming as well. That I have heard of. Yeah. A little bit earlier, you were talking about why you preferred or just things that you liked about a dual root zone. And I also see a lot of the benefits from like being able to top dress an amendment into the soil and or like doing something different with the water. Uh, you have a lot of control in that respect. And I think I've heard you in the past talk a little bit about it, maybe giving more stability to plants, whether it's like windy or just from falling over. What are the... Yeah, so uh, other reasons that people prefer the dual root zone in cannabis because i see a lot of aquaponic farms that are growing like just leafy greens that are straight in the water and it's floating on like a floating puck or, or whatever yeah so the the dual root zone really the reason why you're all it's pretty much going to be required for aquaponics is a couple of reasons one it helps with the weight you know the plants aren't going to tip over uh, and then two uh and, and this is something that we learned pretty heavily with doing research with um, fruit trees and other medicinal herbs that have higher lignin content than cannabis is that the higher the lignin content, the more reliant it, is, it seems to be on mycorrhizal fungi networks and mycorrhizal fungi association for the lignin production itself. At least when in the testing that we did at Aquaponics Source, when we ran dual root zones and side-by-sides, uh, if it was a woodier crop and we did a two-thirds uh, soil to one-third um, flood and drain, or even a three quarters, the two thirds and three quarters always did better than the 50% or the 25%. And it, you know, it was easy to see and easy to replicate. So, so I can tell you, at least through my studies, that, that the more lignin content, the more it needs mycorrhizal fungi. So, um, so the, that also allows you to have that zone. Now, the other thing, and this is really where I think a lot of the commercial aquaponic people that are trying to like, oh, well, we don't need soil. This is what they miss. And this is where they don't understand why it's, it's, it's required for commercial production. If I'm growing Durban poison and wedding cake, and then like some land race, okay, all three of them are going to have radically, want radically different supplemental feed rates, right? One's going to want like 1200 PPMs, one's going to want like 400, one's going to want 800, okay? How am I ever going to do that if I'm running it straight DWC like a, 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 a lettuce wrap? You, you can't. It's impossible. 
but by with a dual root zone, I rig up that one strain to one uh, watering manifold, and I can water that individually, or I just you know water that that zone that with those on it with that nutrient, and then switch my nutrient over and adjust my supplement. And now I can maximize the production of every single plant in that room, regardless. And I'm using 90% of my nutrient base as as the same base, and then I'm able to fine tune the difference, which saves me a lot of money because I'm only spending that tiny little bit. So I'm only I'm not having you would never really dose with 1200 ppms you know you're only having to dose 200 400 or you know maybe 500 at most because you're just trickling in the last little bit that they miss and i think that that's where a lot of these lettuce guys is they're so used to being able to shotgun you know oh i just put all the lettuce in and all of it will grow the same rate and there's no difference it has no difference in feeding requirements well yeah that's perfectly fine if i'm doing bib head lettuce but if i'm doing cannabis and and i got eight different strains in a in a 3,000 square foot room I, i you know they're not going to feed at the same rate. And, and that means my yield's going to be all over the place or my production time is going to be off for a, you know, a whole long list of variables that you guys are very familiar with. So with that do dual you, uh, root zone, do you use the 700 or the 500 PPM scale? What's that? I'm sorry. Oh, so I, it, it's really, it depends on what the strain wants, but most of the time I'm running no more than 400 PPMs, 500 PPMs max for any. I'm just asking like, when you say that there's two different, there's like a 700 conversion. I think PPM is usually a conversion from EC or maybe the lab that you get tested at does it a different way, but there's two, there's like in Europe, I think it's 700 and in, in the U S I think it's a 500. So like if I say a thousand PPMs, oh, I'm, that I'm, might be it's different. different. You're, you're thinking of two different things, I think, Jack. That's the EC. That's like an EC uh, scale. What he what what Steve's talking about is the actual PPMs of, you know, the in the water sample. Does it actual total parts per million of minerals in the water? Yeah, that's. I think we're talking two different things. I think he's right. Electro electrical conductivity versus. You know, most meters that like a grower would use at home is taking an electrical conductivity rating and then it's converting it to a PPM. But what you're doing at a lab is a much different thing. It's actually calculating the total parts per million of nitrogen, parts per million of, so it's a different thing. Sorry, I didn't mean to bring confusion to the conversation, but Spartan, you've been quiet over there and I know that you have a bright uh, growing mind. Do you have any uh, questions that you would like to kick in here? Yeah, I had lots of things, Uh, but one, one thing just for understanding purposes, what you just went over with the dual root zone, so am I right to think that you're basically covering or treating your aquaponic flood as your base, your, your A and B, we'll say, and that um, anything above and beyond that you want to supplement, you're just adding through the top, through the soil? More, more or less, yep. Yep. It's cool. mostly, and it's mostly like potassium and then sometimes other things to make them more available faster. You know, one thing that I'd like to do more research on is, and I've done a lot of research on this, but I think that there could be a lot more done is, okay, in a hydroponic or aquaponic system with a dual root setup, what's gonna be absorbed faster through the soil zone versus the, the uh, aquatic zone, you know, versus a foliar, you know, and I, I'll be honest with you, I don't do any foliar feeding anymore. I just, there's too many problems, but, um, uh, but, uh, that's one of the things where I could tell you calcium and iron for sure through the water over the soil all day long, you know, no big deal. But, uh, you know, some of the micronutrients and stuff, I'd love to really see what, where, you know, how can I maximize molybdenum or zinc or manganese and, and what, which there's better as far as the aquatic versus the, the terrestrial. So, you know, some of that stuff and, and it's stuff I'd love to spend more time on. Yeah, I equate it a lot to my, my preferred style of growing at home is just in a sip container, so a sub-irrigated planter. So it's, it's a lot. It's almost like, I mean, it's like a dual root zone, except for mine's not a, you know, aquaculture. It's just water. 
So for me, it seems like it would be a real easy step for me to, to play with. Um, but one question I had for you, just my mind always goes to the weird. So um, have you ever played with uh, aquaculture, you know, trying to do aquaponics with aquacultures of plants too, like aquatic plants, or would they be stealing too many of the nutrients? But I would think that they would, being present, that they might in, um, enhance the microbiome of the aquaculture on its own, having aquatic plants along with the fish. So um, the issue you have with that is if I'm doing fish, I need to keep it clean so I can make sure they don't get disease or anything. And then I need to harvest them out, right? So having a bunch of plants in there would be kind of a make harvest time hard. Um, now, what I have done in the past is run like auxiliary beds where we had NFTs or something. And when the plants go to flower, we bring those online and they suck extra nitrogen. You know, they're, they're paying, you know, primarily a nitrogen pool so that we can drop the nitrogen down through flower, uh, you know, as we progress through flower, you know, from higher to lower. And that's one thing I think a lot of we, you know, aquaponic people are incredibly aware of that. And I often don't hear people in soil talk about nitrogen reduction, um, especially as they go later into flower. And I often see people that have very clear nitrogen toxicities in some soil stuff. You know where where you know if they had um, you know added some other crops or maybe a, a top uh, a cover crop or something that that would help. Speaking of soil, do you have a preferred soil mix that you go to for your facilities in general? Um, for off the shelf, you know you can always go and might get some shit for this, but a happy frog or an ocean florist uh, for people that are just getting started uh, at your local grow. You can find that in any grow store, pretty much in the United States and. Uh, uh, it's really a good turnkey uh, that doesn't have any of the things that'll get you in trouble. Um, and now uh, beyond that, uh, I like a really good mix. I love to put in mushroom compost and regular compost and you know, we could get into a bunch of the fancier stuff. But if you're just looking for a turnkey cheap, I can go down to the store and buy it. Um, you know, Happy Frog or, or Ocean Forest is going to be the one I would tell you to do. Aaron, you're a big soil guy and I know you've uh, talked a lot with Clackamas Coot and he was our guest last week. Um, do you have any questions for Steve this week or just any thoughts on soil in general? For sure. Um, first of all, that is a really sick, uh, background behind you there, Steve. Um, it reminds me of, uh, some mossy giant artwork that I've seen. I don't know. You, you, I don't know. Maybe you're an artist and you've done that, but, but it's beautiful. No, um, it was done by a friend of mine in San Diego. San Diego very cool. Shout out San Diego, Matt, Matt's crew. Uh, so it was really interesting. I mean, the most interesting thing that I've heard you talk about so far is, and not that any of it was sub-interesting. It was all very, it's all been very cool and informative, but um, I, I kind of agree with Spartan, the dual root zone. This is very easy for me to understand as a soil grower. When you said um, you need soil in this system to grow cannabis, that, that rang a bell for me because I went, oh, I get it now. Because the aquaponics, when I'm researching aquaponics, it's like plants floating on this, like this dock thing. So I'm like, the, you know, cannabis couldn't possibly thrive in this, like, you know, in this environment. So this is, this is more like of a separated environment. So I was wondering what kinds of practices um, do you take to like, you know, are you running this stuff straight through your pumps or is this like, is there a filter process? And then when your water, I guess a sub question from that would be when your water tests too high, do you, is there a way that you bring levels down or do you just dilute or how, how does that all that work? Sure. So 
Um, I guess to start off, um, uh, we, when the, the, most of the water goes from the fish tank and then it'll go into a solid separation. Uh, there's a probably four or five different ways depending on the scale that you're doing it, but that's generally the, the way that you go about it. Uh, now, for, once you have your solids separated, uh, I can take those and brew them in an offline filter or something like that. Um, that allows them to uh, uh, not have issues. Um, so uh, once once that is separated, now I can brew that and that treat treat it like a compost tea. You know, if I'm going to make a, a tea and, and add my different minerals into it and stuff like that. Sorry. <laughs> um, and then you take that and brew it up. One second. I apologize, guys. It's Probably okay. Just we we routinely have a lucky uh, Brandon's yeah. parrot. You're calling it a parrot now too. It's a rainbow oh, chicken. Oh, macaw. Yeah. Or rainbow, macaw. Rain, rainbow chicken. Technically, you know, we're gonna get technical here. That's right. I actually have a question for Matthew. If we could kill some time with right here, if you want. Sure, I'm always happy to help. So another, another one of my high thoughts. I was thinking the other day that, I mean, oftentimes when people bring up terpenes and what they are and like their purpose, like what the plant's purpose for producing a terpene is often for like an IPM, right? I mean, what do you mean by an IPM? What I mean by IPM is, is the purpose, my understanding for the purpose of the terpenes to form in a plant wasn't to entice us to consume the plant, but it was more to prevent uh, bugs from destroying the plant. Yeah, to some degree, that's that's usually the case for a lot of secondary metabolites, terpenes, Flav sorts of things too. What uh, about flavonoids that make it taste better and make us want to eat it, consume it, spread its seed? Might so be that, better for some things and totally toxic for other things in the right yeah. dose. And for the flavonoids I mean, definitely was, help humans. There's like cannabinoids, forty times more effective than aspirin at uh, killing pain. But to that yeah. point, Spartan, um, I just totally yeah. spaced out. Welcome no, back, Steve. Where I was going with it was was is like if that's the case, um, if we could somehow introduce a pest pressure that we know we could get rid of in time or whatever, to to where it wouldn't be a detriment to the plant, would it be a positive? Could it could it be a positive to have some kind of a pre a pest pressure, you know, in you know maybe in the middle of flowering or something, to uh, stress the plant in a way to produce more terpenes towards the end or something like that? Maybe so there were unique I, ones, but essentially. Um, you would probably just want to simulate that sort of a thing. Yeah. Uh, well, that was where my mind was going was maybe that. that's why living soil and organics tends to pull more flavors in that there are, even though we look at them as beneficial insects, there's still insects present and it's affecting the plant in a way to, to, you know, bring up that immune response or whatever. To, it's, to, it's, it's usually it's, a signaling pathway that's involved Spartan that, that turns on a certain gene inside the plant. Um, and so, essentially you could do what you're talking about without having to introduce an actual pest into the garden if we have the science and data to say hey this is the signaling molecule that will trigger this this uh systemic acquired resistance or that's going to and part of that resistance is more you know pining or whatever it may be you know it's or like they were saying, the karyophyllene. What's really interesting about those two terpenes is they actually both affect the C CB2 receptors. The karyophyllene is, I think, one of the only ones that's also a cannabinoid. So yeah, beta karyophyllene. Oh, the yeah. Pinene, as Matthew mentioned the other day on the cannabis aphid, uh, for the hop aphid is actually a repellent, but beta karyophyllene is an attractant to the hop yeah. aphid.
So it may also be for the cannabis effect. Also, these sorts of compounds as as a repellent or an attractant or to have some sort of um, what's called a semiochemical effect or as a signal compound, right? It signals things. It might be uh, a chiromone or an allomone. In other words, it might be something that benefits the producer and harms or does not uh, or negatively and somehow affects the recipient or the reverse. It might positively affect the recipient and negatively affect the producer. Like for example, you know, pests that can sense certain compounds and are conditioned to respond like, oh, this will be food. Let me go check this out. Like that, that for example happens. And it can be the same thing for two totally different pests. So, you know, it's not, it's very complex. Um, it is like, for example, as to the point of like flavonoids, like Aaron said, or, or other sorts of compounds that make things attractive, Absolutely, that definitely happens. Capsaic, but it can be complex. Capsaicin, for example, like for those who know, anyone who eats spicy food that's capsaicin, it literally triggers your pain response. I used to think it was a heat response, but I was told recently by a neuroscientist that it's actually it's actually a pain, uh, it's pain. uh, receptors, not. I can break that down because I experienced it the other day. I had hot chicken before I had mashed potatoes, but the hot chicken was spicy chicken from like a pepper. The chicken itself was actually like cooled down by the time I eat it. So my mouth felt hot, but it was the pain receptors. When I actually ate mashed potatoes, those were temperature hot versus like spicy hot. So when people talk about those two different things, it is a physical, yeah, they're actually different receptors. But interesting to know, for example, mam- so why So why does this matter? Well, like for peppers um, and other things that have capsaicin, well, capsaicin, right? So uh, birds are immune. The vast majority of birds do not uh, interact with the capsaicin. They don't, fe- they don't feel it. And well, they also don't, for some birds anyways, um, they don't uh, process the seed when they uh, feed on the peppers. So they can pass the seed and help it grow. Uh, whereas mammals with our, with our strong omnivore stomach can eat the whole thing. And that's not very beneficial for the plant. So it produces this thing that's effective for um, mammals and some other animals too. So just as sort of a contextual thing, if that helps. One last thing I wanted to say about terpenes that Spartan kind of talked about earlier is the plant doesn't produce them for human pleasure at this point. It kind of has began to do that because breeders are now selecting for terpenes and the smell and the effect. So it will eventually, as you select more and more for that smell and flavor, you're going to get more of it. So we artificially, we're like, you know, through selective breeding, able to uh, selectively make it produce whatever terpene we want at higher levels if you effectively breed. Through selective breeding, we could also even maybe... Uh, have a line that responds to a particular stimulus in a very predictable way. Um, And I think that's more closer to what Spartan was kind of getting at. Is there some way that we can use these pressures or at least the reactions to these pressures um, in a beneficial way from a cultivation standpoint? And the answer is absolutely. I think so. I know I've had pest pressure in the past. Steve, I think you're unmuted, but then you might have been physically muted again because I saw you talking, but I can't hear you. There we go. Sorry. No, it's okay. Um, just to back up what he was saying is that so uh, Mike West was talking on, on our podcast. They were doing um, looking at the, I believe it was Emerald Cup entries or one of the other cup entries. And they found that all of the ones that had powdery mildew also had really high spikes in CBL. Uh, so there's a direct correlation between powdery mildew and CBL exposure or, or CBL levels and powdery mildew exposure. 
which I found very interesting. And then to further support your point, I know I, I can't talk about how you do it because I'm NDA'd on that and it's, there's a lot of money behind it. But THCV is directly connected to a very specific and repeatable and controllable plant stressor that if you do that in the right way, will really increase your THCV levels. Um, so there absolutely are ways out there to increase these different cannabinoids and terpenes in very specific ways. Um, I know often in the, the herbal side of things with aquaponics, we would root prune a lot of the stuff in NFTs to increase the essential oil production, again, because the plants think they're under attack. Um, so you, a lot of everything you're talking about, there's absolutely heavy evidence to support uh, including the CBL as one example with the, the powdery mildew. Um, one of the other things we also found was that with the capsaicin with, uh, with peppers in aquaponics is significantly increased compared to soil controls as well, meaning you know there's some kind of associative effect going on there. Uh, and one of the reasons why we, we kind of think that the, uh, the dual root zone aquaponics system works the best is because you have the terrestrial microbiome and the aquatic microbiome that are exposing those plant roots to an enormous amount of different species of microbes that are radically different from each other and you have all these different chains of microbes that are chelating and mineralizing things at different rates and completely different you know the, the stuff to go from uh, you know uh, non-usable nitrogen to usable nitrogen in the aquatic or potassium as another example to versus the terrestrial is completely different the microbes of species are different the the metabolites are different the secondary metabolites are different uh, so you're going to have this immense, uh, immense uh, array of different microbes that are exposed to the root system to stimulate its immune system and create a wider variety of terpenes similar to like a vaccine. Um, that was kind of what I was talking about earlier, but uh, that's at least in our theory on that. And, you know, again, yeah. the more microbes that are non-pathogenic you're going to expose the plant to, the better. I, I agree with you because, you know, I've talked about this a lot, increasing the biodiversity of your microbiome in soil. Um, has a drought effect i've shown it with terpene results on my testing and um it's one of the reasons that i use probiotics to help enhance and build up the uh different um indigenous populations in the soil um if one of the i had uh one of the things that i usually had problems with um when i was doing aquaponics we had i had a friend back in san diego we turned his whole entire pool into a garden pool and uh one of the things that always lacked that had to be added was chelated iron and the ph would always fluctuate and they were just using i think tilapia fun fact um even we lost like, you brandon oh yeah maybe you got muted I, I didn't know if you completed your thought Oh, uh, no, I was just asking, um, you know, in aquaponics, what are some of the ways that you can keep your pH from fluctuating? And, and you said that you, you didn't have many problems in, with your iron is, you know, I was just trying to figure out maybe what we were doing wrong. Oh, no. So you, you will have iron problems. Um, the best thing to supplement your iron in aquaponics for your plants is going to be DTPA iron. And, they, and you want to keep that in that two to three parts per million range. You can get a, a checker from Hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H, um, which is a great, a great a company. Uh, it's also a great company if you're a listener to the show and you wanna test your nutrients and you have any amount of color blindness, 
Hannah actually has digital meters for anyone who has colorblindness. They also have a, an immense amount of different stuff that you can test for. Um, the other testing company that also has similar products is Lamote. So if you are someone yeah, out yeah. there that has a little bit of a, a disability with your eyes, um, I cannot recommend them enough. It's, it's really allowed a lot of my friends to actually test stuff that before was all color tests that they couldn't do. Yeah, I actually have a digital soil uh, test kit from Lamont, and uh, I was looking at getting some of the leaf tissue, uh, mineral samples, MPK samples, and as well, I think the HANA, they're the ones that have, um, they have bricks meters, and then they have the SAP test that you can do, uh, digital SAP test meters. To, to, to answer your other question, though, on the uh, pH, so for pH down, uh, for smaller adjustments, I like phosphoric acid. You're adding some phosphorus while lowering your, your system. Um, for larger adjustments, you're going to have to fall back to hydrochloric acid or muriatic acid. Um, you know, again, don't dose it into the fish tank, but uh, dose it into the sump or something like that at a slow rate uh, to adjust your pH. Now, on your um, uh, uh, your other stuff, when, um, you want to... Um, uh, uh, use potassium silicate and calcium carbonate for pH up. Yeah, I do that. I use uh, the Agsil 16 constantly in my uh, in my system. We were talking a little bit about THCV earlier, and I just wanted to share. I got a, some good luck recently. Uh, one of my wife's coworkers bought a jar of it's called Pink Boost Goddess from Flocana. They have a farm up in Northern California, and the THCV is like between 10 and 11 percent. It's one of the higher strains and they got a bag seed of it. So they're going to grow it out and pass me a cut. So hopefully do some work with that. Maybe Jack the Ripper or Chernobyl, other THCV lines and maybe gift some. Uh, I have a few people in my DMs that have told me it really helps them with like seizures and THCV is really good medicine for people that are uh, needing appetite suppressant and it can be a good pain reliever and it's good for a number of other things. So uh, really interesting stuff there. But I also wanted to go on and share something that I often share on this show. But with Steve, uh, there was a study done in Canada. And the only reason that I found out about it was because I listened to Hash Church and they were talking about uh, lavender and linalool levels in lavender were highest in the drought stress regions in France. So I started to drought stress my cannabis just late in flower to try it out. And I noticed, wow, my terpenes kind of boosted. I never got them tested, but it was just anecdotal. And then sure enough, uh, University of Guelph in Canada did a study where they examined a week seven drought stress versus a control condition. And it actually increased uh, not only terpenes, but cannabinoids. And uh, those were both significant increases. And it had a slight increase in dry yield of the flower, but it wasn't significant enough to like make a claim for. But like when you look at the numbers, it was slightly higher. So I just wanted to share that uh, study at a University of Guelph. So it's uh, interesting stuff because there is definitely things that can trigger uh, responses in the plant that are positive that we might otherwise think would be negative. Steve, I have a question for you, and maybe this is a little, a little bit too basic, but I mean, if you have a fish tank or you have a friend with a fish tank and they're doing water changes once a week, could I just take that water, either dump it straight over my soil, or is it something that I should aerate first just to try to uh, make sure I don't have an anaerobic situation or, or dilute it into water, or what, what would be the, uh, how would you add that kind of water to try to get that microbiome into your soil? If you had a, a five-gallon bucket, I'd throw a cup of sugar in it and an air stone, let it sit for 24 to 36 hours and brew that up real well and then put it back, you know, use it to water your stuff. Nice. Like a brown sugar or something like that? Yeah. And again, for, for rapid release stuff, you want to use sugars. 
Um, if you're gonna use like a long-term, uh, like something I'm gonna put on the compost or something that's gonna really need, you know, need to be there longer than, than go with the molasses. But if anything less than that, any kind of teas or anything you want fast, always go with sugars over molasses. A lot of people push molasses a lot. Sugar really is much better for those faster, you know, brew. Are there any sort of, for people who really want to make sure that they have, um, that they don't have a detrimental effect on like the environment with, with such a setup, are there any ways that people can keep from having a eutrophication problem where like runoff will get into a stream or a lake or something and um, cause a die off or anything like that? Are there any dangers associated with aquaponics for people who, if they mishandle the um, waste, if there's any or any sort of byproducts? No, I mean, um, unless you're going to just start dumping system water, you know, we're fully recirculating and just mineral adjusting. Uh, and then we'll take maybe one to 5% of a system off per month um, to um, uh, uh, just to, mainly for heavy metal production. After a long time, you know, six to 12 months, you're going to have, you know, the fish just through and other microbes through their normal processes are going to produce small amounts of heavy metals or your, your tap water or you know just just other issues so you have to just export that right and it's not any like not heavy metals in that like it's a problem for testing but heavy metals in that you, you just get an imbalance of some of the other minerals or you might get mainly like sodium sodium can build up because it's a byproduct of naturally occurring microbial processes over time um, you have issues with that sometimes if anyone of you guys have ever tested the bottom of an old hugel bed you'd be surprised at the sodium levels um, uh, because all those microbes are just you know creating it over time so or accumulating it one or the other so that that can be an issue so uh, or if you're anywhere near a coast you know in california almost all those aquifers have some amount of sodium so unless you're roing that water which we generally don't need to do uh for mo for aquaponic systems we you know we don't go down to ro because we just, we never need to so you always do have a small amount of sodium or something like that you will have to burp off but again we're most of the time that we're doing that we're watering the area or we're we're have a, a uh, wicking bed or a bit wicking trough up front and have free vegetables for the community and that's where that water goes right so no big deal so that's how a lot of these people are handling it on the commercial scale and on a small scale there's not enough nitrogen i mean the nitrogen in the water yeah i might have like 60 or 80 nitrates but if you look at compared to the ammonium nitrate that the guy next door is spraying on it like some uh, you know if we're comparing it volumetrically with the amount of water like 2000 ppms versus our 80 like it's not even, we're not even in the same, you know, sport versus the same league. You know what I mean? Are you guys using an amino acid nitrogen? No, no. So that all of our, we don't use any nitrogen um, supplemented at all. All of our nitrogen comes as a byproduct from the fish. So when the fish breathe uh, and from the fish waste, we get both ammonia, well, mainly ammonia. Um, and then as that ammonia is broken down by the biological microbes, you mainly nitrospira and nitrosoma. But now that there's been more research done, there's actually six or eight different ones that are pretty common uh, throughout aquaculture that do it. Um, not just the two that most people like to talk about, um, but they break it down from ammonia to nitrite, which is much more 
plant uh, toxic and then nitrite to nitrate which is much less plant toxic and, and fish toxic so uh, in that nitrate form the plants can readily uptake it the downside is the plants can um, by utilizing it in nitrate form have to convert it back to ammonia to utilize it again they need molybdenum to do that so uh, if you're not dosing your molybdenum maintaining your molybdenum especially on large-scale aquaponic systems you can actually strip the molybdenum out and cause yourself to have nitrogen problems uh, I've seen it on on when people were were running high high nitrate levels and, and really feeding the crap out of the fish, um, where they ended up stripping the molybdenum out. <laughs> so the molybdenum really just is a really present in a very very low sort of overall ratio, but um, but it has to be there. And then uh, is there like a particular ratio that that you use in terms of molybdenum? Obviously nitrogen, everybody's got their own thoughts on that and it you know fluctuates so regularly. But what about molybdenum? So molybdenum is really cool. So molybdenum is important for a bunch of stuff, but the biggest thing is uh, is one making sure your nitrogen is useful and I recommend you know keeping it at a lot of books will tell you how to keep it at like 0.03 or whatever for the nutrient solution I'll run it at 0 0.1 0 0.2 I find that you can run it all the way up to 1 ppm it doesn't seem to have a lockout or any kind of negative effect and what you can what it will do is so if, say I have a, a lettuce farm and his lettuce isn't red or I have a purple kush and it's not purple or granddaddy perp and it's light purple but it's not that fuchsia that my homies got um you know what i mean so that that's uh can absolutely be a direct result of a lack of molybdenum if you don't have enough molybdenum molybdenum is also heavily used in anthocyanin production anthocyanin is also used um for uh, the plant will produce extra anthocyanin to bind up a molybdenum uh, if you have a mild molybdenum toxicity. So I can force it to be really purple if it if it knows and has the genetic ability to do that. So uh, by giving it a very mild molybdenum toxicity, I can actually make it even more purple than it would normally even express. Uh, so that's epic, where where man. you can that's, really. I hope play everyone's taking notes right now. That's epic information right there. And and Steve, you've clearly like seen this happen. Uh, on a number of occasions. That is, I mean, because people, who doesn't want purple weed, right? Got to throw 440 blue in there too, because I, I use 440 blue supplemented. And as soon as I started adding that to the just regular 3,500K cob spectrum, or even just like when I've run blues of metal halides and flower or any type of blue, I tend to notice more uh, purple production as well as terpene production. And if you go on my page on my safe story, there's actually science that backs it up. Uh, that 440 nanometer blue wavelength, as well as I think UVA, both increase. They're very, very close to each other on the wavelength. They both increase that purple anthocyanin production in the plant. But dude, this is like something you can just buy a small little pouch of powder and add it to your, 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 your water and get purple, more perps. I mean, you know, I'm in the hills of California and, and I love my winter runs because they're just blue and purple. And, but if I could kill that on every dude, that's, that's really good to know. 1%. All right. 1% it is. Yeah, just what you're talking 0.1 ppm's, 0.2 ppm's. You can run it all the way up to one ppm, but I usually just run 0.1. Point, you know, 0.1 is usually my target. And oh, it, it ppm. That's okay. yeah, ppm. Yeah, okay, sorry. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So, so this is this is the advantage when you're looking at you know the exact ppm levels, and then we're making those kind of changes and observations. This is all I've been doing for eight straight years is is trying to figure out what is the ppm ranges for aquaponics that's fish safe. That, I, that will still grow killer weed. And then if I if I have to go above what the fish can tolerate, okay, cool, we can do that in the soil zone. So, but by knowing exactly what they are and, and knowing exactly what the, the minimum amount of minerals that you need 
with the, the proper microbial environment being living soil or aquaponics. I prefer aquaponics, but I also love living soil too, especially when you get to scale. It makes no sense to do, uh, you know, a thousand acres of aquaponics. It, it gets expensive, right? So, um, <laughs> or for, you know, lower cost CBD hemp and stuff like that, it just doesn't make sense, right? But, but you can take a lot of these ideas like increasing biodiversity through in increasing your inoculants and doing some of these other things to, to, to do it. On the flip side, just because we're talking about all the different um, inoculations and different things on the positive, here's one on the negative. Last year on, on, on uh, Oklahoma, we saw an enormous outbreak of septoria. And, and, and in fact, lots of parts of the country saw septoria last year on quite a big scale. Um, and where did I see the septoria was almost always on corn, soybean, wheat fields that were dead that had no microbial life in them. And that they were always getting fusarium and, and you know, uh, a septoria seemed to, to really gravitate, you know, 85 plus percent of the time was in these dead fields. And again, attributing this, again, if the plant is doesn't and never sees any fungal exposure in the root system, how is it gonna know how to make any kind of defense against any of that? It's not. And so if you, if you take these things and put them out into a traditional, you know, uh, a meat and potatoes, NPK sprayed field that's been some other crop for the last 10, 15, 20 years, there's no life in that soil. We, we, we all preached on that at our, on our own at some point, I'm sure. How is that plant supposed to know how to defend itself? Of course, that plant's going to get fusarium and botrytis and septoria if you have a dead, you know, soil. If I take a human and put them in a bubble and then drop them in a Times Square when they're 21, of course, they're going to get sick. Anyone can figure that out. It's the same thing. I mean, I think it's a more complex thing than that, right? But you're right. Like, Simplified, yeah. It, uh, so like, yeah, there's an innate immune system with plants, but you're right. Uh, plants tend to, as I like to call it, um, subcontract out their uh, more precise immune system responses to microbes. And, you know, and especially nowadays, since so many things are moving and exchanging globally, like viruses and pathogenic bacteria and fungi are... Um, interacting with plants that, you know, historically, they, you know, the ancestors of which haven't interacted for like hundreds of millions of years, um, especially after like the splitting of the continents most recently. And I think that's a really important thing to consider. I also wanted to reiterate that I appreciate you talking about the sort of logistical scale of aquaponics and what sort of makes sense on economic and perhaps even environmental perspective. Uh, with organic soil versus aquaponics because a lot of people who are passionate I think about certain aspects of especially when it comes to like permaculture or you know some sort of sustainable agricultural endeavor I, I find that sometimes they don't consider the scale and that you know I think that's a little bit uh, you know unhelpful <laughs> because some things make more sense of scale than other things and I appreciate you iterating that. Yeah, and you can absolutely have a large aquaculture facility feed a large soil, living soil facility. Uh, in fact, there's a place uh, out in the desert, not too far from you, uh, uh, Matt, out in the desert of San Diego, um, or past, at, I think it's in San Diego County, but it, maybe it's not. Anyways, it's out, out in the valley there, and they have uh, four two million gallon tilapia tanks, and they grow moringa in the desert. And they're growing moringa trees and harvesting that and, and you know, selling them both clones and then the leaves for, for mass uh, export off of tilapia tanks and growing in soil that's just, I mean, there you can't grow anything there. 
in just about nothing, nothing commercially, that's for damn sure. And they're able to grow that because it's so you can absolutely integrate large aquaculture setups with living soil and, and have them support each other. But, you know, it doesn't mean that they have to be recirculating water systems, uh, you know, completely. So again, I think that there's a lot of room for, you know, the, the, not only for the living soil and aquaculture people to learn from each other, but benefit from each other in immense ways, or setting up an, uh, an aquaponic greenhouse to be your mom room and your clone room. We can get two to four inches of growth all day long in our veg plants, sometimes even better than that, uh, and have, you know, three new nodes per day, like well-balanced plants. Uh, you can't get that clone production off of anything else, sort of aeroponics, you know, and, and we're doing this in, in an organic, you know, uh, organic, you know, microbial rich way. So having that as a support system to, to feed out a large scale soil production is what we were planning to do in Zimbabwe before we got put on hold with the virus and everything. So, and, you know, we'll, we'll see, uh, depending on how long the virus shuts down the world, whether or not that gets running again, but um, if that does, we'll, we'll be able to, uh, to fire that back up again. But that was, again, on a large scale, if you're doing 750 acres or 10,000 acres, you need to have a greenhouse facility to support that because uh, yes, I could do seed at that scale, but I want consistency of production and tight control of my cannabinoid production at that scale. So running it from clone, uh, especially when my labor costs are $12 per day is a lot or, or, you know, 12 to 14 bucks a day for most of the people there, you, you're not, you know, you can't compete with that, right? It's easier to do clones and have the, the consistency of production and not have any variables with, with, with the output. Breeder Steve, I think might be probably the biggest uh, aquaponics that I've seen at scale. I don't know how much of his hectares are under that, he but is, I think he... for sure. He's also the original aquaponic person back in 1997, back on Overgrow, is the very first person to write about it. Yeah, that was a fascinating thing. And uh, I really, like I said, for anybody who hasn't heard those episodes after this is over, definitely go back and check those out because Breeder Steve's wealth of knowledge and coming on their show and uh, they got really deep into the aquaponic sides of things. But I had a question because you were just talking about tilapia. I do think that that is the fish that the brand Fish Shit uses is tilapia. I could be wrong. So if I am, please correct me on that. But what do you think about that uh, brand? I got a free sample of it at a hydro store. I used it. The plant seemed to like it. It was a little bit expensive for my taste as far as an amendment to put into the soil, but it seemed to do really well and make the plants pretty happy. So I was uh, just curious what your thoughts on that tilapia, poo, and fish shit. I'm kind of happy to see the, the aquacultures and aquaponic and just, you know, our side of the industry kind of have a representation in a product form out there. Um, I know we had done a bunch of test products that were very similar when I worked at the aquaponic source that um, when they changed owners it was just one of the things that never saw the light of day and that just, you know what I mean? There's a ton of products that we did that just were really cool, but maybe for one reason or another, just never got saw the light of day and that was one of them we actually did so uh, it's a great product um there's a lot of different companies and aquaculture facilities that you can buy fresh too as well but it's a great great product we had them on and did an hour-long interview with them as well um but yeah they um again it, it is a great product and especially for veg you know it's going to really kick butt there's a couple i, I just gotta say it stinks it definitely smells so if you're going to oh, use it I love that stuff, man. That's why, that. why you, you mix it with a little bit of labs. It'll it'll get rid of the smell. Sorry, but, Spartan, I didn't hear you. Go ahead. Yeah, I'd say there's a couple of questions I just wanted to ask out of chat. They kind of did a bunch of Spitfire real quick ones. Um, let me see. It was Joe Gross was kind of two-part question. He was concerned about wanting to know ex exactly how much work is it when you add the fish component to take care of the fish. And then secondly, um, is there disease that you have to worry that the fish could tr actually transmit to the plant? Is there any disease that can go from one to the other? 
Sure. So uh, I guess um, to, we'll answer the second question first. The only disease that I have documented that, well, I don't have a qPCR documented, but I got it pretty well documented otherwise. Um, we've observed lettuce chlorosis virus going from lettuce to cannabis that had no tools that were touching it. So we weren't clipping them. So the only vector we had was either a completely unseen and undetected insect that was flying in the room, which was very unlikely given the IPM regimen in that room and uh, you know with the cannabis and everything. And then, or um, uh, the water, it was water vectored. And I've seen that at two separate locations where there was no insects possible. And we had lettuce chlorosis pretty obviously in a couple of lettuce uh, some of the lettuce that had been suddenly we had chlorot you know chlorosis all over all the cannabis plants in the entire system. The only um, current, the only vector known for lettuce chlorosis virus is the, silver, is the silver leaf white fly. So yep. for those who I are curious to give, about that, sorry, I, have I wanted to get Brandon I'm not saying and uh, Kyle an opportunity. I think they're going to have to leave halfway through the show tonight. So Kyle, I know he just wrote in the chat he's going to be heading out. So Kyle, you could give your uh, farewells. Yeah, Paul and Paul. Nice. Thanks for being here, man. Uh, you just opened up a whole new uh, world of culture to me. Uh, I find it very interesting. I'm going to have to do some uh, research on that, to be honest. But uh, thanks for hosting, Jack. I really appreciate it. You're the one that kept the, the flame going. And obviously, everyone else that's here and contributing. And uh, if anybody wants to, if anybody needs any feminicides, check out the letter pbreeding.com. Uh, all my social media is on predicated breeding on all platforms. And I uh, hope you guys have a good night. Thank you for joining us, Kyle. And Brandon, I think I saw you mention earlier you might have to leave after an hour to get over to your facility. I know it's about that time over there for you. Uh, I don't that know if you're still with us, but you could give your sign off if you'd like. I'm already over here. Uh, I'm just waiting for somebody. I'll I'll just quietly exit when uh, when it's time. Sounds good. Well, with that said, we're about the halfway point into the show, and I wanted to lighten it up a little bit. So, uh, Steve, if you haven't uh, been able to get smoking over there, uh, this could be an opportunity for you to roll one up or pack a bowl or something. And if you are smoking, uh, I'm just curious, what, what are you smoking on over there? I got a couple of things. Hold on. I got some nice local homegrown from uh, the guy I work Guy, I'm, Well, never mind. Can't talk about that project yet. We're going to have product. You muted yourself, I think. Must have been intentional. Sorry about that. Um, this is some, uh, some nice local flour. Smells fire. This is um, venom. This is really, really good. Smells really, really loud. Uh, some local, whoop, dropping nugs everywhere. <laughs> and then I also have cup runneth over. Yeah. And then I got some rosin. Uh, nice local rosin. Filled all the way to the top. Oh, wow, that's a full container, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. You and go. Then, uh, I got some other. This is the uh, only thing I have that's dispensary, but this is uh, some silver haze. Um, it's supposed to be wax, but it's very dry. It's very good, though. I don't know what they did wrong, but it's very tasty. Always fun to check in and see what everybody's smoking on that. Uh, rosin jar did look stuffed nice and fat, and I, I definitely like the color on that. I'm a fan of Venom. Uh, if it's the same Venom that I'm smoking on over here out on the West Coast, I think it might be a Humboldt Seed Company thing, like a Venom OG or something like that. But, uh, it is Venom OG, yep. That's pretty cool. from Humboldt. I'm actually... I, 
smoking on another Humboldt Seed Company uh, production, which is Pineapple Upside Down Cake. So shout out to them. Awesome breeders with amazing flavor. I don't want to uh, detract too much, but we were on an interesting topic that I just wanted to bring about for people who are, you know, first hearing about Les sclerosis virus, one of the only viruses that are confirmed in cannabis. So um, I just want to say I have a video about it. So I guess that's a bit of a shameless plug. But I also think the observation you made was really interesting. So I really, I'm curious about more information, uh, Steve, when you, when you find out more, please let me know. Matthew, oh, yes. For, from now on, I will save tissue samples and sell them. Anything interesting to, to uh, a certain person we both know. Very cool. Can can you run trichoderma in those systems? So here's the deal with trichoderma and aquaponics. You absolutely can run it, but it's like a nuclear bomb, right? It wipes everything out. So if I come in there, like, for example, I have a customer that came to me recently that has a lettuce system and they have powdery mildew or not powdery mildew, they have pythium out just out of control. Their, their systems at uh, the water temperature isn't really an issue, which is kind of weird. Um, they have some other problems, but in order to come in and do that, they, they either need a new kit with labs, which is much easier to rebalance and stays, doesn't tend to overpopulate and over dominate like, like trichoderma does, at least under microscope observation. Um, trichoderma, if I can, I, it'll absolutely solve my problem, you know, and you can nuke it with trichoderma and wipe out your root rot, but it's much harder for me to then go back in and get the system balanced again. It can also screw with your nitrification a little bit. Sometimes uh, if you get real high levels, they kind of go on a feeding frenzy and, and trichoderma in particular can be a problem where it can screw with that a little bit as well. I've had that when people went completely overboard trying to solve a problem immediately and did too much right so but so that's the issue with trichoderma now the threshold seems to be around three percent um if you go much about three above three percent on any mix that's when it seems to really start to take off it has enough population to really push it and that's just in my own personal observation but you know so how does, how does that per- how does that percentage translate to colony forming units so, so I'm basing that on percentage of the different inoculants that we tested on a 700-gallon system set up at the aquaponics source that we had three of running side-by-sides. That's what that data is from. Okay. Have you ever tried recharge? Because I know that that has some trichoderma, trichoderma in there as well as like mycorrhizal and, and humic acid, fulvic acid, and a range of other things. Yeah, so, so the two microbe products we found at the aquaponics source uh, that we tested, and we just happened to also be based in the same state, were um, uh, Mr. Colin Bell's uh, uh, Mammoth Pea and uh, Recharge from the, the uh, uh, Dew Growth Show. I'll have, to, I'll have to send you some of my uh, Microbe Plus from my company, Bokashi Works. It's, it's multi-purpose. I use it in soil systems. It can be used for aquaculture, for bioremediation it just it does everything do you like to use bokashi in uh, a system like an aquaponics well i I like bokashi a lot but bokashi is um i do a lot of uh, imo and a lab uh, uh, inoculations anyway so we're kind of covering most of the things that are in bokashi um at least i i make imo every week right so i'm kind of a madman most people don't do that um, we, we, every time the IMO box is emptied, it gets refilled, it gets cleaned out and refilled and goes back out. Right. Uh, that that's what we do at all of our facilities. 
we have massive microbial collections. You know what works great? Uh, if you're at home, since it's a cheap homegrown show for making IMO, go to go to your local grocery store and buy that big jar of, of cheesy balls. Eat the jar of cheesy balls. Now you have an IMO container. <laughs> they are great for that. And you can burp them. You put them on there. You put a big label on it with a piece of duct tape. Good. Now we have stacks of those, all the different labeled with each week and everything. It's great. Um, now, one other thing I've gotten really into, and I've talked about this in some other shows, and I think it's another great way is the cheap home grow show. And you guys have probably a lot of people that are doing outdoor is pest management IMO. I need to do a video on this. Um, but uh, we'll just, we'll drop the knowledge on here too. Um, so uh, are you guys familiar with IMO? We'll, we'll walk through the process of, of, of the whole thing, but are you familiar with that a little bit? Do, do like the 10 second version of IMO one, IMO two, sure. three, and, and four, and, and walk yeah, people through what sure. the difference. Sure. And if, so you're, you, if you're going where I think you're going about what you did in Africa, please continue. Yes. Because I tried to explain this and I failed horribly. So <laughs> yeah, so this is a, a method. So basically in Africa, we ran into the problem was, um, we couldn't, we were having issues with getting our beneficial insects shipped on time from South Africa. And we were having to deal with grasshoppers that were seeming to ignore everything we threw at them. So, uh, we came up with this on per suggestion of, um, uh, it was either Chris Trump or somebody else, I believe it was Chris, um, but told me about this and we tried it and I tried three different formulas. And this is the one you guys, I'm not, not no reason for me to tell you the one that didn't work, but this is the one that worked really well. Um, so we did an IMO, pest management IMO. So if you're familiar with IMO, you, you cook rice, you, you, you cut it 50, well, you put it outside, cut it 50% with sugar, blah, 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 blah. So we'll, we'll go through the steps. So you, you take um, your amount. So say if I'm going to do a kilo of, of rice, I'm going to do uh, two thirds of a kilo of rice and then one third insect frass, okay? Or a pound, I'll do one third of a pound insect frass, two thirds of a pound um, rice. I'm gonna mix that all up and then I'm gonna put it in a rice cooker and I'm gonna cook it until it's about 85% cooked. It's not gonna smell super great, but it, 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 it puts all of the insect juice and all the, the chitin and all the different you know, things all mix up with the juice of the rice and, and gets it all infused and makes a nice mix and mash and, and makes a nice base for you to collect those um, insect skeleton feeding microbes. So, um, uh, so once that happens, you can put that out and you, you, you're going to cook that out and then you're going to put that into a cedar box or a basket. If you can get a wooden basket, um, you can put that out and then put that under a tree and you're going to cover that up with like a, a mesh or paper towel or, or something like that. And then, uh, you're going to also take a, a couple pieces of, uh, find a, a branch in the forest or something like that, that has the white mycorrhiza fungi or the bottom of a leaf or a couple of things and sprinkle a couple of those on top of the paper towel too, um, because the spores will drop on top of the, 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 the soil uh, and then uh, um, allow that to sit there and, 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 the, and populate. And what will happen is you get fungi and other microbes that actually love to feed on both the rice and the starches, but also the insect skeletons and insect frass that's, that's present there. So now we're, 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 solely collecting those insect feeding microbes that are pa either parasitic or were loved to feed on their exoskeletons, the chitin and the other things that are of those insects. And we can capture them and isolate them uh, in, in that base along with some beneficial microbes as well from the forest. Now we can take that and turn uh, after uh, four or five days collecting in this in the forest should come out and look very similar to your traditional IMO with the white fuzz, maybe a couple extra colors in it. <coughs> 
excuse me, that you're not used to, but uh, it'll, it'll look, you know, maybe a little more colorful than you're used to, but again, mostly that white fuzz. Now you take that, cut that 50% with sugar like you would uh, and mix it together and make IMO2 and then uh, make a liquid IMO from that or turn IMO3 in a liquid IMO from that or an IMO4 in a liquid IMO from that uh, works great and, uh, for, for getting rid of insects. Uh, you, it works as, uh, you know, as a, directly as a pesticide. You can spray them foliarly or apply it to the base. I wouldn't use it real late in flower just because you are putting live microbes on it. You might fail for plate count, but anything but real, you know, second half of flower, it kicks ass, especially for, for a, a, a probiotic, you know, a, a absolutely um, non-ecologically detrimental spray that you could use for, for grasshoppers and caterpillars and quite a wide range of things. It really just kicked butt. We, we went from having the grasshoppers and caterpillars being mainly grasshoppers uh, being a huge problem to them just not being a problem at all. And they were mainly chewing the Cambrian layer, the outer layer off the, about the middle of the plants, which was, you know, completely just the whole killing the whole top half of the plants and after that we, we stopped having problems and it just kicks ass you can brew it up you can make it anywhere in the world uh it, it's awesome did you mean chitin i don't mean i don't want that to sound pretentious I, 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 I just couldn't yeah, chitin, yeah. Chitin. I literally i literally messaged russ of spartan i was like so, uh, i think uh, i don't want to uh, i don't want to be rude but i, I always I think... pronounce it i always pronounce it chitin because i'm an elder scrolls nerd so uh, <laughs> oh yeah i remember respect that morrowind yeah so that's because <laughs> yes. that, that was made from the insect shells so that's chitin, what right I yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah so i guess it's chitin my bad it's okay. It's no problem. Um, I used to say cotyledon for cotyledon. The little. That sounds like a dinosaur. Leaves. Dude, it Matt does. and I have gotten into way, some of that stuff. <clears throat> some of this, some of these words are so hard to pronounce that, like, and a lot of this stuff, like, dude, we read so much, right? Like, we're researchers, all of us. So some of the stuff you never hear somebody say, and you read it and you say it ten times, and then somebody's like, "Oh, by the way," and you're like, "Great, now I've said that ten times," and. Like Nobody most terpenes, me. how many of the how many of the dude, terpenes totally. have any of you realistically heard someone actually verbally say the name of? Dude, I've I read them more Googling times because I'm saying them on podcasts. Like limonene is actually pronounced limonene, not limonene. It was just like yeah. I had to Google the pronunciation. Or, or the cannabinoids too. You know how some of the cannabinoids are so incredibly long. Cannabinoids like, or endocannabinoid. Like there's two ways to. I don't. You know, it's like. Uh, fuck it we can't get it right the, the big thing for me is like i try to be you know i try to be like right about like names and stuff people's names the names of places latin binomial names and like i you know you have to throw your hands up at a point because uh there's so many especially with latin like for example family names that end in ae can be pronounced e or if it's uh classical latin it's i like gaius julius kaiser that's how you're supposed to pronounce it like from a certain perspective or there's ecclesiastical latin which is religious and that has a different pronunciation the big one was swirsky i i say swirsky i but uh classical latin would say be swirsky you and you just pronounce the e like the i like an e twice the two i's so it's very complex and at some point you just got to be like i think i know what you mean like i don't want to study like you know, linguistics anymore. I, I want to get back to like entomology or, you know, like whatever I'm horticulture, whatever I'm doing, like forget all this nomenclature crap, but, but I totally get it. You got to get it right. That's part of communication and, and research. Yeah. Part of the problem is though, you can tell people the wrong one and they believe you that that was be the right one because they don't know the difference either. So 
Yeah, and then sometimes you throw a loop, like somebody somebody named a a spider uh, the species epithet David Bowie, just because. So like that's not Latin. So that happens all the time now too. So it's really not you know it's you, you or, they start... change, or they change the genus in Latin like uh, Strelalap schematus and Hypoaspis miles and like why why do we gotta go and radically change like people well, memorize that's everything it, and that's oh, legitimate I... though that's a that's a phylogeny thing that's super legitimate um, knowing well, how they're related is really important. But my point is that it's confusing to people because they memorize one thing and they go to buy it and then they go back and it's not there. Right. It's a but there's thing. no I way to. But there's no way to fix that. It doesn't matter. If they're part of radices. Oh, I know. It's just the point of it being a confusing thing for people as well. How you were saying they changed glomus uh, interradices from uh, yeah, no, rhizophagy interradices, right? Interradices, I believe is the. Yeah, instead of glo was it a glomus? Was that what it was? It was. I guess it isn't anymore, right? So that's the whole point of it. It really wasn't ever a glomus if it isn't anymore, right? So yeah, bizarre. at a certain point, you're <laughs> right. It does become arbitrary. You either you either turn you either bring a whole lot of other names of species from one genus to another, or you take one and put it into another, or you or you might distribute them depending on how bad the phylogeny for that group is. Um, shout out to uh, tiger beetles and caterpillar hunter beetles. Uh, yeah, that's still a, a big contentious point. So. I wanted to get back a little bit to the aquaponics since we have you here and we very rarely do get to talk about it. Is there something in the field of aquaponics that's changed recently? Some big, uh, I guess, revelation that's been made or maybe something that you're doing that's on the, sort of the cutting edge that a lot of people are not talking about, but uh, is something that you would like the community to know is available? Um, I think there's just, you're seeing a huge explosion of companies. I think I know of at least a dozen companies in the next year, they're going to have, you know, pretty sizable operations coming online. Um, so, you know, it went from kind of being this obscure thing to this thing that now suddenly makes a lot of financial sense. And now people are seeing some of the results of some of the producers that are actually know what they're doing. Um, definitely check out like chief cultivator on Instagram over at uh, habitat life. I defy you to show many so show me many soil growers that have trichome counts per square inch as high as some of the stuff that he's posting. It's insane. They're just pure white. They just it's all crystal. It's like smoking a pure. It, it's insane. He he's doing some incredible work over there. So I think it's just the fact that you're seeing some people you know show off some stuff that looks insane, and you're seeing um, uh, Green Relief Incorporated worked with a university and has a white paper study on directly on how aquaponics increases total cannabinoids on average by 14% compared to most commercial production rates. So you're just seeing, you know, people are looking at numbers and seeing some of the crazy results that people are having. And, and the fact that it does grow fat twice as fast in veg, and we can shave anywhere from five to two weeks off of the flowering times, depending on the, the total flowering time uh, on the flower. And so we can have much faster production. We can get five to six yields per year instead of four. Uh, you know, so that's a lot of money per year per square foot when we're talking about the tax rates that some of these states are doing and things like that. They're looking at the bottom line going, hey, we could do five or six runs this way or we could do three or four that way. You know, what are you doing? For you. Um, is there like a fish that is edible? Like, like obviously tilapia we talked about, but something. Catfish, maybe? Like um, so... salmon and stuff like that. 
So, so salmon, salmonids, uh, and other fish that tend to go from saltwater to freshwater will actually absorb inordinate extra amounts of potassium. So that becomes a problem. Um, so we don't, unless you're going to do a decoupled system, which you can do, but it's much more complicated and you have more problems. Um, uh, you, you can't do decoupled. The other issue you have, or you can't do it with them. The other problem you have with that is, is that they want very cold water. The cannabis does not want water in the 50s, right? Like it's going to not do too great in the root zone if the water is really cold. It's just not, it's also going to affect mineral uptake. So we don't want that. <laughs> so, so warm uh, water fish, to, you know, yeah, warm so, fresh water fish. But, but yellow perch, paku, um, uh, you know, uh, channel cats, um, they, they're all great for, for, for raising. Now, uh, you know, if you're going to do something more exotic, you could do um, a, a peacock bass are a great one. Um, and then paku, again, our, our paku ribs sell for quite a bit to the right market. So, um, and then lots of different Asian fish that, that people will grow out for, you know, on contract. Um, I, w- I did an operation, uh, I, well, did a design for operation in India and they're growing snakeheads because that was the most profitable thing to grow per, per kilo per um, pound of feed we put in for, for their area. We just did the metrics on it and that's what made sense, you know, and that's what the market, you know, there's a very high demand for it. There aren't a lot of producers on it. We had lots of massive tanks that we can spread them out in. It just, it made sense. So we d- we doubled the number of fish tanks and, and reduced the number of fish per tank and just, you know, adjusted the flow of the system for that. And, and they're making a ton of money, you know, so you know, you just have to look at the metrics and this is the number one thing. And I cannot stress this enough. If you're doing any commercial cannabis system, and I see people do this all the time with aquaponic vegetable systems, people will go and they'll spend a ton of money and they'll grow a ton of lettuce in an area that has 3000 other lettuce growers that are all doing soil and selling it for half as much. And, 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 and or, or something else where they're just, they're, the, the market's not there. You know, they're, they're great at growing. And their, their system's awesome, but there's no market to sell what they're growing. So you got to research what you're doing and make sure that you have a market and fine tune it. You know, what might make sense in one area might, might, might not make sense in an area or the regulations might prevent you from doing it, you know? That's a really... um, one, one, one really good thing I found. And this is another example with aquaponics specifically. Uh, I can't kill or process the fish that I grow because uh, meat processing is a federally regulated system in the United States and it's still a class a schedule one drug so they can't step foot on my property that's a really Uh, good point about the about both the industry and the logistics of like owning a business and operating a system in that way it definitely is way more complicated than I think a lot of people would consider and you can't just say well I can raise fish really well and I can grow plants really well I can figure it out like it's it's yeah it's super complex it sounds like I appreciate you bringing that up but what, a, Steve, what about a, like a small scale home grow, we'll say, um, and look at it in the opposite direction, and maybe we're not going to harvest food. What if, uh, are there long lived fish that uh, would do well in, in a setting for a long period of time, maybe, or, or is just not really good? Sure, so tilap- tilapia can live to be, you know, 20, you know 15, 20 years. Uh, koi can live to be 129. Um, the, the oldest one documented it was 229 years old at the Japanese uh, Royal Gardens. They have incredible records going back to this year 700 or 600 on all the fish that have been bred there, um, which is kind of insane. Um, but in terms of uh, uh, data and, and things for fish knowledge and koi in particular, they have you know incredible records that are all, I believe, publicly accessible now online. 
um, but that's they have the oldest record recorded one um, which is 229 years old but um, you know a lot of your larger freshwater fish severums green terrors you know a lot of your larger more aggressive fish you get for freshwater uh, all work really good you know they're heavy feeders um, the more carnivorous a fish is uh, the more um, uh, a protein they're going to eat and the more nitrogen their waste is going to have whereas the less protein they have in their diet the less nitrogen they're going to output so you can kind of use that you know for instance if we're doing a real large-scale operation we'll have carnivorous fish for our veg systems and you know maybe an omnivore for the flower uh, or something like that you know again to help balance the system but again unless you're doing something massive it doesn't make sense to really start playing with the fish uh, uh, as far as min maxing abolish had a good question um well not really a question he brought up like ponds supplementing outdoor feeds with pond water um what's your experience with pond water in terms of like you know because that would be a that would seem to be a, a feasible way to upscale this at, on a lot really 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 large scale um what's your experience with that so, so if you're going to do it to where the mineral level was comparable you would have to first off highly suggest uh, adding extra aeration to the pond so making sure you have a um, you know, a sprayer or a turn tumbler or some other thing because you're going to need the extraction, but when you increase the, the nutrients. And then I would go ahead and start feeding the fish, you know, a pelletized feed or something like that and start to really increase that production because of, of the, you know, a pond naturally is going to completely take care of all the nutrient balance. It's going to have really low nutrient levels in the water itself. So unless you're going to start power feeding those fish, you will see a benefit for sure. But you're not going to get a similar benefit to feeding an aquarium water to your plants doing from a water change because if you're looking at the, the total mineral ppms of that water it's significantly higher because the dilution rate of the biomass from fish to water is is just radically different but you'd still be collecting a microbe though you would just be missing the mineral component absolutely but yeah if, you, if you're strictly talking mineral uh, microbial inoculation absolutely so do the fish uh, produce enough uh, guano overnight to be like everyday feeders or how does that work? I'm sorry, I, can you repeat the question? I just didn't quite understand. Do the fish shit enough to make like enough nutrient overnight for the next feed or do you, is it like every three days? Oh yeah, so so when we do it with the aquaponic system, we on real large systems, we we pull the nutrients from that once a day from the filters uh, on a, on a smaller scale, maybe once or twice a week. But, you know, if you're doing it from a pond scale, you know, that's just going to constantly, you're basically going to feed them and test the nitrogen. So you're going to test the ammonia, the, the nitrite, nitrate, and you're going to try and maintain a set nitrate level. So most aquaponic systems in veg, you're aiming for, you know, 60 to 80 parts per million in veg. And then in flower, you're aiming for a little bit lower, you want around 30, 30 PPMs in the beginning, uh, maybe, maybe even 40 on a heavier feeder and a longer, longer vet, a longer flower. And then you're going to drop that down to maybe five or 10. Uh, if you can, you know, if you have that level of control at the end. I know that, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I know that uh, fusarium can sometimes, especially for the immunocompromised infect humans and also other animals. And I've, I remember I've read studies uh, showing fusarium species infecting like shrimp, for example, and I think also possibly even fish. Um, they might not be the same species always, uh, and I can't remember off the top of my head, 
but uh, is is that a um, a potential vector? I know we kind of talked about that earlier, but have you looked into that maybe in a more detailed way? We have not had any documented issues with fusarium. Um, I know there was a question earlier about uh, diseases transferring from plants to fish and vice versa. Um, University of Hawaii did a seven or eight year study on pathogens in aquaponics. Um, there's a lot of people that wanna say that the, the fish waste is, is a, a potential vector because of the proximity of the fish waste to the plant roots. And that simply is unfounded. Um, unless you have plants and basically raw sewage, which you would never do regardless of whether or not you were growing in soil or, or uh, aquaponics, the plants have a natural filtering mechanism between both the, the, the microbes that live in and around the root system and the plants themselves. They seem to filter out not all, but the vast majority of, of issues. They did tissue sampling for E. coli, salmonella, uh, a whole bunch of things uh, and, and just found no samples. In fact, we used this as our a part of the data, or I didn't, but the, the Aquaponics Association used it as part of their data um, as justification to continue on the uh, organic certification as, you know, as proof of food safety. So, um, you know, if they're able to use it for that level, I, you know, I know it's been gone through with one hell of a, a fine tooth comb. It makes, a, it makes a lot of intuitive sense to me. So I appreciate you having that detailed response. Well, if you have a properly balanced and, and a properly healthy aquaponic system, it's hard for a pathogen to get established when you have a really balanced ecosystem that has a lot of things that will feed on them. You know, a, a pythium, for example, is going to get preyed upon a wide range of different beneficial microbes that were, if you're doing an IMO inoculation, a labs inoculation, and some of the other stuff just as a passive part of your dosing to keep your system healthy, it has no chance, no way in hell it has a chance of surviving because there's three, five, three, five or 15 different things that want to eat it. You know what I mean? Or, or any of the food sources, the metabolites or bases that it would normally feed on and then replicate on to a high enough population where it could start to actually compete with something just aren't there because they're, they're being processed and moved further along the food chain. So again, I think that, you know, if you have a really healthy aquaponic system, you just don't have a lot of these root issues in particular that you have in other ones because you have so many other microbes that are out competing it or otherwise utilizing those resources. I have a question for you. Do you have any like, <clears throat> like field test recommended, like strategies that you use to your water, like on the fly? Cause if like, I imagine this kind of system, if something goes wrong, it can go wrong quickly. And um, so you would need to like, obviously, you know, if it's anaerobic, it smells like piss, but you know, I imagine there's other problems that go wrong. So like maybe NPK levels get out of whack or, you know, pH obviously you can test with pH meter, but so what kind of strategies do you have for that kind of stuff? Yeah. So there's, you can test for a wide range of things. In fact, if you want to, if anyone here wants to see a list of everything that you can test for at your own home grow, actually have a whole spreadsheet with all of the ones that anyone can buy with all the a link to the, the manufacturer and all, all the stuff, the amount of tests per box, all that stuff. If you go to the, um, aquaponic cannabis growers facebook group uh, facebook.com backslash groups backslash ap canna uh, and the file section i have a whole spreadsheet that has every absolutely every answer to every single mineral that you have including many trace minerals and micronutrients and heavy metals and everything else but mainly um uh, hannah iron checker um uh, you hannah multi-tester if you want to drop the money get the multicolor wheel it's a little bit more but allow you to do like six or eight or 12 different minerals or whatever um 
I like the HANA silica tester and then just a basic uh, aquarium pharmaceuticals API test kit um, uh, is what I like to run around with, at least as a base kit. Thank so, you. Yeah, appreciate that. I heard you on other podcasts mention a, a stat that I think really uh, would, would sell me or, or makes me want to try aquaponics at least um, about the microbial populations versus like a really good lev living soil versus even like the worst aquaponic. So if you could just, uh, what, what study was that found in and what was the result? Sure. So, so a couple of years ago, NASA did a study where they were trying to figure out what microbes they needed to take to Mars or off-world. And they did a study for both soil and an aquatics, uh, like um, aquaponics or, or hydroponics. Like what, what microbes would be useful for converting waste streams and all that stuff. Uh, and then what they did was they went to aquaponic facilities. They went to two different ones that I was involved with. One of them that I was actively at at the time when, when they were there. Uh, and they, they went and sent out these samples. And what they found, what they did, um, I believe it was 68 different aquaponic and aquaculture facilities. And then I forget how many soil samples, like a hundred and some soil farms and then 68 uh, aquatic samples. And uh, one of the, or two of them were aquaculture facilities. One was like a koi facility across the street from an aquaponics facility. Um, they were the only two that had any similarities with their microbial chains, but the, mo the uh, least diverse aquaponic system compared to the most diverse soil system, the uh, least diverse aquaponic system had 168% more microbes in terms of species uh, that were found when they did a DNA sample, just looking at how many different types of, of things are here. Um, so the, the chain that they had in the aquatic biome was just, um, you know, 168% more diverse, right? And that's in the worst case scenario based on NASA's own study. And um, there, I have it posted on, Tara Lee Live has a, a link to the, the, the um, if you go over to her channel, she has a, a video of one of my presentations from the Regen Conference. And I, there's a link, you know, I have the exact paper name and all that on there. I have it in one of the other episodes. I don't have it in front of me right now. Yeah, it's fine. As long as we have the breadcrumb, we can go and find that research through that link. Yep. And shout out to Terry Live. Yep. I got a quick question. Did the fish um, inoculate all those microbes or where did they come from exactly? Well, if you think about it, uh, the aquatic microbes have had a few or at least a billion year head start on evolution. So it makes a lot of sense that they've uh, evolved or co-evolved. And then if you think about it this way too, um, what mineralizes something in a, in a certain area, uh, freshwater in particular has been isolated, you know, microbially so many different ways because of rain and you know rivers and mountains and all these other things things have co-evolved in a bajillion different ways um, none of those aquaponics facilities that they tested had any similarities in most of their microbial and mineralization chains they were different which is insane that was not the case for the soil which is even more insane <laughs> So it's a really, really trippy study. And again, that was one of another weapon that they used when they came after us for organic certification, trying to say that aquaponics isn't organic. It's like, well, we have more microbial diversity. We have higher terpene levels and higher flavonoid levels in vegetables and in cannabis. And we have multiple years of cannabis testing that we can prove that in side-by-sides. And we have multiple years, we have going back at least three years with microbial testing in the cannabis industry in the United States and Canada. You can't tell me it's dangerous when I when they test every 10 pounds of biomass that we grow. 
You want to have an argument? Cool. Cannabis industry's got you. We, and our data really helped save the day on that argument because, again, we had mountains of, of tissue sample testing for microbials to go back and say, hey, look, it doesn't, it's not any more dangerous than anything else. It's the same, if not better. And here's the data. And that's the reason why it's still organically certifiable in the United States. Well, again, it's a schedule one, right? So as, as you know, you can do hemp, but still, you can still be organic certified as an aquaponic facility, non-medical cannabis. Um, and, 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 and you absolutely should be able to, and, and you can make every argument on the scientifically that it is on, on both the microbial diversity level and the mineralization level and everything else. And we use 18% of the water of a soil grower. So there's that too. I think Those it's are interesting. All great thing, certainly. Um, I know that personally, I would be uh, a little bit reticent if I couldn't control all, well, not all perhaps, but I'm always reticent about like not knowing all of the microbes in a system. Um, but since you have so many sort of parasites and that sort of a thing, I might feel a little bit less so. You know what I mean? I, do you think that's a uh, sort of a um, well, so with with aquaculture, a lot of times they'll they'll hit them pretty hard before breeding with a, a you know something to clean them out, uh, and then they'll treat them again with the antibiotic or something before they give us the fry. Uh, especially the eggs are often treated with antibiotics, so your likelihood of you bringing in anything that, especially if you're we're talking com especially commercial scale, the likelihood of you introducing something from a commercial aquaponics facility, because the aquaculture is heavily regulated industry, you know, especially with, with pathogen testing, they, you think cannabis is bad, go, you know, see some of the stuff they do for the aquaculture facilities, it's crazy. So um, it's, it's a, you know, it's a meat production, you know what I mean? So it, it's heavily, heavily regulated. So I don't, especially if you were working with a licensed aquaculture producer as your supplier, I really, really don't think that there's any chance of, of any type of, of thing that's certainly going to come back as a liability, um, but definitely something that's going to make anybody sick. I think that's, that's totally out of the question. Do you think that it's good that there are so many regulations to achieve that end? Um, on the aquaculture side, yeah, it's needed. You can get sick. Same thing, with like aspergillus same thing with like aspergillus testing and other stuff for cannabis. Yeah, we need it. It's a, it I went down to Jamaica when, when, I, when they first legalized and, and I was working with the University of Technology at Kingston and they asked, they, we were on the, got a chance to talk to the regulator and he said, what do you think needs to be there? I said, people need to know what potency is so they know if they're buying 3.2 or 151 and that you know, gets it through to people real easy. And then they need to know if it's clean or not. You know, they need to have that pathogen testing and, 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 and make sure if they're getting clean product. And then they need to have, you know, a, a sane uh, regulatory structure that's not overtaxed and then a ban on local control. Because, you know, I never got a chance to vote on the, the opioid dispenser down the street. You don't get a chance to vote on my medicine. I think, I think that makes good, sense. Good points to fight for. I wanted to ask you for going back to the whole cheap home grow perspective. The ocean is basically in my backyard, and if I could walk down there with a gallon jug and fill it up with some seawater, is there a way that I could use that in an organic soil system? I would imagine that I'd have to cut it because, like going back to like Rome, they'd salt the earth and Carthage when they like they'd win a war so that they couldn't grow plants there. But I've heard of people using uh, ocean water or seawater successfully, and there's even a product C90, which is dehydrated seawater for all the uh, microbes and uh, minerals content that's in there. So I was curious it kind of feels like that might be a way to get microbial um, 
levels and diversity up in the soil. But I was curious what your thoughts were. So I don't. Ooh, on top of that, microplastics. Sorry, that was a really good point. I don't. I don't do anything with salt water. I, I would ask Chris Trump or Eric Weinart or one of the other guys. I. I it's one of the things from KNF that I just subtracted from my list of things I use. I would say, fill that bucket up with seaweed and uh, make a nice lac lactobacillus ferment with that and put that on your plants would be a much better use of your bucket. Good answer. I'm a, I mean, if I'm going to go down there, it's a nice walk to the beach anyway, a couple minutes. So if I'm going to collect something as like a natural crafting or whatever, you know, that's a easy and, and cheap and legal way to procure some potentially beneficial things for the garden. So thank you for uh, clearing that up. And I'll probably reach out to the other guys as well to see what their thoughts are. Yeah, I would grab some some crab shells and maybe a dead fish or two or whatever. Mix that all up real well and then put put that in your lacto, you know, take your labs. I prefer to do kefir labs. So I'll take um, uh, milk and kefir and, and just do it that way. And maybe a little bit of sugar uh, rather than doing it with the air collected. I find the kefir has a much wider range of vitamin B complex, which means the plants grow faster. Uh, and they, it seems to just have a better response. Um, so I just do basically do like the, the whey from the kefir and I take the kefir top and I either put that on my garden or you can compress it and cook it and make cheese with it if you want to. Um, but <laughs> um, I drink kefir personally. I think it tastes pretty good uh, depending on the ones that you get. It's uh, really great for your gut as well from what I've been told. But to me, it's just like a tasty beverage. Kind of like kombucha. Oh, yeah. I love mixing it with mango and throw it in the blender. That's my favorite. Just take a piece of mango throw that in there, blend it, just a little bit of sweetness to it. It's the best. Loving the uh, health talk. Spartan, I know that you're going to be going here in the next five or 10 minutes or so. Uh, do you have any final thoughts that, or questions that you wanted to ask Steve before you get heading over to the Michigan Bro Grow Show? Um, no, man, you caught me in a stone moment, man. I'm just blown out right now. just listening. So, uh, no, I, I've exhausted all my questions, man. I just, I just love sitting here listening to him talk. It's like, I don't have any love for fish. I hate to say it, you know. Uh, I've never had a fish that I like the taste of. Um, although one time I had a freshly caught salmon that was pretty goddamn good, I will say. But it still was fish. I'm a halibut, man. I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a huge fish fan. And I hate the smell of fish, and I hate having to deal with fish. But I could go to a buddy's house, shout out Abolish Farms, and get some fucking fish tank water and brew a little tea and still get the advantage of it. Or buy, go buy some fish shit from... Uh, the grocery store so i definitely want to take advantage of it i mean just sitting here talking to steve about this makes me consider even consider having a fish tank shit shows you how powerful that shit is because i don't have any love for fish <laughs> and if anyone uh has any doubt i mean check out my instagram or my youtube uh, especially recently i was working with the farm in oklahoma here and uh you can see how fast they grow just because they're live videos that i did <laughs> I've been enjoying the walkthroughs of the gardens. It's uh, interesting because I've grown basically every other style that you could probably think of. And uh, aquaponics is something that I've just never had the chance to explore or haven't taken the time or uh, effort to explore it myself. But when I see people like yourself and so many others being very successful with it, it makes me very curious. And I figure if I've tried the other stuff, I might as well give it a shot at some point. I did want to say uh, earlier, we were talking about the dual root zone. One of your uh, people on your panel, I believe, maybe just one of the farms is in a full uh, water setup. And was the reason that they were doing that to save on medium or I couldn't really remember why, what, why would a farm, it seems like everybody's moving towards that dual root zone and maybe they might even be transitioning, but is there a benefit to uh, just being in water only or with like the 
hydroton pellets? It's a little less labor cost, but I think they're mainly, we're just jumping into it from a standpoint of um, being new to it and, and, you know, not having that experience. There's quite a few other companies that did that. Um, Green Relief Incorporated started that out way, that way for their first four runs and they weren't hitting the, their, the, the goals they were trying to achieve. And they switched over to running even small dual root zone pots and, you know, they've kind of taken that and run with it. So. It seemed like that was the way I felt like they were maybe a newer uh, person into the aquaponics scene, which there's nothing wrong with that. Everybody's got to get into it at one way or another. Uh, I've actually, my barber, he was saying that he had a fish tank kind of aquaponic setup. That was one of his first grows, but um, it's interesting where everybody gets into it. And uh, thank you so much for sharing all the knowledge throughout the night. We've coming into, we've got about 12 minutes left here. So I was just going to pass it over to maybe Aaron, the grower, and uh, see if you have any final thoughts or comments. Um. I guess my overall perspective, um, I, I, maybe it's not appropriate for this setting, but, you know, the scale up perspective is the most interesting to me. You know, um, if you have an ocean next to you, I guess that would be sort of like an interesting option to, to figure something out. But um, I don't know if I have any questions. I, I kind of just want to hear you talk anymore that, you know, anything else you have to say, I want to let you say that. <laughs> I'll pass it over to uh, the American one and then uh, maybe Matthew for some IPM perspective and then I'll give it back to Steve to wrap up if he has any final thoughts he'd like to share. So, Tao, do you have any questions? Uh, or No, you pretty much hit everything I was curious about. Um, now, suppose I just you get a fish out of a lake and you just put it in a blender. There would probably be a massive amount of microorganisms in that concoction, weren't there? Oh yeah, or you could uh, you could make W or is it a FAA out of it too? But yeah, you, you could uh, I guess in theory do that. I wouldn't I wouldn't suggest going out and killing it. Now, if you find a snakehead or something or a grass carp is not supposed to be there, that's a great thing to do. There are definitely invasive uh, fish, and and speaking of invasive, uh, is there anything IPM related, Matthew, that you'd like to uh, speak about before we pass it back to Steve? Mostly, I just wanted to ask if Steve thought that there were any um, uh, maybe IPM pressures that are unique to aquaculture with cannabis and maybe not just like arthropods and fungi and that sort of a thing, but maybe even like systematic things like that have to do with aquaponics, like the temperature of the water, uh, making sure you have the right microbial, uh, well, the right uh, microbiome in the water and that kind of a thing. Well, the, the thing I think I would focus on the most would be um, that, that would comes to mind the most is I would say root aphids really love moist environments. <laughs> so we kind of have the perf perfect environment for rice root aphids. Um, but that's the only one I would say is like kind of uh, intimidating, I guess, when you, you can get rid of them, but they are just a bitch. Uh, it takes two or three months to finally get rid of them entirely and that's doing like a bunch of stuff um, but that's the only one really i found that i would say maybe is uniquely harder to get rid of if you get them introduced but again proper you know ipm and starting off with clean products going to prevent all that from being an issue in the first place um I'm trying to think if there's anything else humid you know uh powdery mildew can be present a little bit more than usual because we tend to run higher um uh, vpd than most people um, because we are in a you know running water through the whole place but it also helps us maintain proper vpd really easily we we never need to run a humidifier we only run dehues so 
That makes Spartan. a lot of sense. Um, and I'll definitely corroborate that about the rice root aphid liking those moist spaces. It has a sister species, the water lily aphid, and it's semi-aquatic, so it runs in the family. I will also tell you that uh, never grow cilantro anywhere near your cannabis. So, uh, I've, I went to a separate grow not too far away from the grow I was at that was doing vegetables and NFTs, and holy crap worst infection i've ever seen in my life so definitely avoid cilantro uh they i've seen that at a couple different places now that we're doing cilantro rice root aphids just love the living crap out of it do not ever plant it as a companion plant or anywhere near your cannabis plants if you have remotely afraid of rice root aphids uh it will attract them it's what one of the plants that in my book that i'm writing uh on aquaponic cannabis it's one of the plants i include in my enemy plant section along with brassicas Excellent. Great piece of advice, Spartan Growing. I know you've got to get heading out here. Um, you can go ahead and give your final shout outs. Just want to shout out to Steve. That was awesome to have you on here, man. It's always always a pleasure to talk to you. It's always great to pick your brain and it always gets me excited about fish, of all things fish. And uh, shout, shout out to Chad. They're always fucking cracking me up and keeping me laughing and smiling. Shout out to everybody else on the panel, man. This is awesome to hang out with you guys. So, uh, you know, everybody's got to spend time here and I appreciate it. So uh, growers love guys. Thanks again for joining us, Spartan. And Steve, before we do our final uh, shout outs, I wanted to give you an opportunity. If uh, there is something that you wanted to say that you didn't get an opportunity to say yet during the show, you could uh, say it now. And just if you have any shout outs or final thoughts, anything you'd like to uh, get out there, go for it. Sure. So, um, uh, one last thing. So uh, I'm putting on um, the uh, a virtual aquaponic cannabis conference on October 3rd and 4th. Uh, we'll have a whole bunch of different speakers from all over the world. We have people from Europe, uh, Australia, uh, United States, um, all over speaking on a wide range of topics, including uh, uh, Xenthanol here uh, uh, for on pest management. Uh, and um, uh, it'll be a really good time and it's free for everyone. We have a bunch of different companies that are gonna be giving away products uh, to people in between each speaker. Uh, it's gonna be really cool. We have a bunch of people that are giving away living soil and aquaponic safe products. Um, and uh, yeah, it's gonna be a great time, a great way to learn about aquaponics and, and you know, things, even if you're not growing aquaponics, you know, you can apply all, almost everything that we'll be talking about to your living soil or other soil systems. So uh, just a great way for people to learn and uh, just a really cool experience. And uh, yeah, uh, if you're looking to check that out, you can find it on the Potent Ponics YouTube channel. Uh, it'll be live all day starting at 8 a.m. Uh, both of those days. Uh, and uh, you can always check me out at my uh, YouTube channel on Potent Ponics for the regular podcast episodes. And then uh, I'm available on all the uh, podcast apps, uh, regardless of what they are. We're on over 150 now. Uh, so uh, very easy to find if you're trying to find more about the show. Awesome. It's in my calendar. I was going to say, yeah, Matthew is going to be there, uh, Zenthanol himself. I saw him, and I actually uh, scheduled it. I don't know if I'll be able to like take all my other plans off, but I'm going to try and attend it while it's live and happening and be able to comment in the chat and all that good stuff. That being said, I want to pass it over to Matthew. You can give your final sign-up. It was a really good uh, episode today. I really appreciated it. Um, I asked some hard-hitting questions, mainly because I knew that Steve would have a very informational and um, helpful answer for the vast majority of them, which he did, all of them really. So I really appreciate that. 
uh and yeah check out the um first uh the the first uh aquaponics presentation on that subject i'm very much looking forward to speaking in it if you want to know more about ipm integrated pest management i have a bunch of resources on youtube uh, you can find me on twitter at xenthanol you can find me at sync angel on instagram and you can find me youtube channel xenthanol where most of that information is Thank you so much for joining us. I always appreciate your perspective and expertise in your field. It uh, br brings a great deal, I think, to the conversation. So I'm very thankful to have you and look forward to uh, that conference. I think if one thing this pandemic has brought out, it has been some more affordable and available things to people because a lot of these things that would have been conferences, people would pay to travel to go to. Um, some of them are being made available for free online now. So people that can't travel or for physical reasons or not being able to afford to do it, and uh, one reason or another, are able to get in on some of these conferences digitally, which I think is a really great thing. So thank you guys, and uh, hopefully people support you in other ways and uh, buy those books and do those things when they're ready so that they can support all the content that you make available to the community. That said, Aaron the Grower, you can go next. Uh, first of all, I want to say thank you to Steve, uh, like the rest of the panel. I, I just appreciate your your expertise and your mastery, your black belt of this aquaponic system. Uh, it shows, dude. And, you know, I'm totally tuned in now. I like I think I followed you for a while, but then now I'm like hooked. So <clears throat> I'm definitely going to check you out on all those platforms. Um, I am Aaron the Grower. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at ATG Acres. Um, tomorrow, Future Cannabis Project is having Linda Chalker Scott on, and I plan on jumping in on that conversation. Peter emailed me last minute, so I don't have any agenda planned, but it should be a really fun talk. Hope everyone gets to check that out. I think it's tomorrow at 8 a.m., so have some coffee and, and tune in. I uh, appreciate the panel. Um, always fun to get to talk to everyone. This was especially a fun episode. Did work. I feel like these episodes are getting better and better. I don't know how we're going to top it next week. Steve, you might have to come back. But uh, I appreciate everybody. Thank you, guys. Thank you for coming. I know that you're off grid, so uh, using the electricity and technology and getting on here is uh, not always the easiest for you. So we appreciate you you're giving us that time. And, I save uh, a sli I save a sliver of internet for you at the end of every data plan. We greatly appreciate that, and it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Last but not least, for sure, is the American one. Yes, thank you for hosting, Jack, and the panel was great. Everything was interesting tonight. You know what I just realized is that water and the plants probably been connected longer than water and the soil. So they probably have some ancient, you know, relationships that I didn't think about before asking about. And uh, I forgot to ask about which strains may do crazily much better in aquaponics, but we'll get Steve back on a different day. Shout out to chat and to uh, Shane and uh yeah check out uh photoponics uh youtube channels a lot of great episodes in there and there was something else i want to shout out other than the cheap homegrown network all that content is great also and if you ever have a pest or pathogen you can find out how to deal with it on the xenthanol uh youtube site and yeah that's about it peace out everyone wow that was long sorry Hey, no, you killed it, man. You, you gave the whole rundown, and I think uh, sometimes people don't hear it on the first go-around, and uh, hearing it again, maybe they'll pick out the people that they found most interesting or they haven't followed yet, and make sure to go and check them out and follow them and support them in whatever ways they can. With that being said, 
You can find me at Jack Greenstock on Instagram as well as Cannabuzz. I'm Jack underscore Greenstock on Twitter. I host my own podcast, Greenstock Talks, which is on pause until I finish my book, uh, 50 Strains of Green, which is going to be just highlighting some uh, green strains of cannabis because I don't think they get enough love. There's a lot of purple love out there. I'm going to do a book about purple strains, but do a little bit of history and uh, the background, how they grow, uh, the things that are special about them as far as their cannabinoids and my personal experiences with them. So hope people are uh, going to look forward to that. And once I get those out, I'll probably get back on my own podcasting. But without uh, further ado, this is Jack Greenstock signing out. Dr. MJ Coco is not here to say grow or love. So I guess, Tao, you could take us out. Grow is love. Peace out.